afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this very important seminar on the right to health and access to technologies, health technologies for COVID-19. Uh, my name is Leslie London. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Cape Town, but I'm a member of the People's Health Movement South Africa, which is a partner uh, organization, one of the driver members of the campaign for what was then the ratification of the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights but now as a campaign around economic and social cultural rights in South Africa. And this is being hosted by the campaign. And as we know, the question of access to technologies to address COVID is a huge problem of inequity, is a huge challenge for human rights. Uh, and many of the organizations that are part of the campaign around the ICE, SCR, and in the health sector in South Africa more generally, have been very preoccupied with trying to promote uh, equity and access to health technologies for COVID and in trying to defend the, the right to health and the rights, the human rights of people who are in marginal circumstances. So this webinar is a really important um, event for us to reflect on how we can best achieve that in the current context. And we're very pleased to have a really excellent panel who are going to share with us their perspectives and have some initiate some discussion and some ideas going forward. I just want to alert you that the webinar will be recorded, so it will be available afterwards, and we would uh, try and make use of it for um, public education and to raise awareness around these issues. I'm also going to ask Gladys from the ICECR campaign to perhaps post in the chat later any URLs or contact details for the campaign if anyone is interested in getting involved. So without further ado, I'm going to turn to the speakers. We have three speakers who I'll introduce in sequence. It's uh, Professor Rodrigo Uprimini, Candice Sahoma from MSF, and Professor Yusuf Bauda. Professor Rodrigo Uprimini is a professor of law at the National University of Colombia. He also serves on the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights for the UN, which is the body which oversees the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. He's also been active in uh, civil society and human rights NGOs. Uh, and he was centrally involved in two very important statements from the committee on the question of COVID and vaccine. So we're really thrilled to have him on the panel and to share with us his international perspectives. So I'll hand over to you, Rodrigo. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. And good morning from Colombia. Good afternoon in African time. I'm very happy uh, for being in this uh, conversation and I thank uh, the, organizers, the organizers for having invited me. I want to clarify that I don't speak in, in, on behalf officially of the committee or I speak on my personal capacity, uh, even if I think that uh, all my considerations are shared by all my colleagues in, in the committee. What I'm going to try to explain in these 15 minutes is uh, what we can call the legal doctrine of the Committee on Intellectual Property and the Right to Health. And for that purpose, uh, I will base my presentation on six official documents of the Committee to, see, to show that is a legal doctrine of the Committee is not uh, only my, my opinion. These documents, I mentioned them uh, because it might be useful for you to, to access them and read them carefully. Uh, are three general comments. As you know already, uh, general comments are these documents in which the committee summarizes its legal doctrine in relation to, for instance, a specific right or, or a specific phenomenon. And these are important because the legal doctrine of the committee is an authoritative interpretation of the covenant. 
And second, three statements made on issues of intellectual property in general or intellectual property and vaccines. These are the main bases of my presentation. The general comments are 14 on the right to health, the general comment 17 on the protection of authors of their material and uh, moral interest in relation to their creation. And finally, the general comment number 25 in relation to science and economic, social and cultural rights. And the statements are quite forgotten, but I think very important statement of 2000 on intellectual property and human rights, which I think is crucial for this matter, and the two statements that we adopted in the last year of which Leslie mentioned. Having said that, my presentation will have uh, four parts and a conclusion, three parts and a conclusion. I will begin by the general vision of the relation between intellectual property and human rights by the committee. Second, I will uh, show the relationship between this legal doctrine and the right to health and the right to benefit from scientific advancement and its applications. Third, I will speak uh, more concretely in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And finally, I will make some more political conclusions. So the general vision of intellectual property and human rights. For that, I, I, what I want to make is a conceptual difference that I think is crucial uh, for analyzing properly these subjects and the normative implications of this conceptual uh, uh, difference. And the conceptual difference is that we should not make a confusion between intellectual property and the human rights of authors, uh, 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 the human rights of everyone to benefit from the protection of the material interest and moral interest of their creation. Uh, these are not the same thing. The committee has stressed since its, its, its statement of 2000 and uh, the general comment uh, of uh, 17 has made clearly the difference. Uh, intellectual property is not a human rights. It's an economic regime that wants to stimulate, if it does or not, it's controversial, but that wants to stimulate innovation. But it's not a human rights that, that is derived from the dignity of persons. On the contrary, the rights of authors to be protected for uh, their material and moral interests uh, uh, in relation to the, to the creation that they have made or the advancement, uh, scientific advancement that they, they have made is a human rights. But these are different mechanisms. You can protect this right for, for other mechanisms different than intellectual property. And I would say that sometimes intellectual property does not properly protect the rights of authors. It protects the economic interest of, uh, for instance, corporations. Uh, so the committee have made that distinction in several parts, but uh, if you want to have it uh, clearly, I, uh, I encourage you to read uh, the first paragraphs of General Comment 17, in, in which the committee makes clearly this distinction. Um, having said that, wh why that is so, is so important? Because if intellectual property is not a human rights, then intellectual property, and I turn to the second point in this first part, intellectual property has to respect human rights, has to uh, protect and fulfill human rights, the intellectual property regime. Uh, so the committee has said several times that uh, as uh, the in, uh, intellectual property regime is 
an, economic, an economic regime that wants to uh, achieve some results, uh, it has to do it with the full respect of all human rights. And there has to be a mechanism for a human rights review of intellectual property systems uh, to see if that uh, uh, normative standards are fulfilled. Uh, that's the general statement, but this general statement it has concrete implications. It's not an abstract statement, but in, in itself, I think it's already very important. Intellectual property has to respect human rights and is not a human rights. But what are the concrete applications or, or implication of these statements? And that has to be with that has to do with the cross-cutting human rights principle uh, uh, that uh, has been developed by the international legal doctrine since decades. <clears throat> uh, uh, and I will mention them. The first cross-cut cross-cutting principle is the principle of non-discrimination and equality. So this implies that uh, the intellectual property regime has uh, not only not to be discriminatory, but has to pay particular attention all at the international and national level uh, of the rights of uh, the uh, individuals and groups that are disadvantaged and marginalized. The second is the principle of participation. That is that uh, uh, human rights imply a right of people to be informed and participate in decisions that affect them. So that implies that uh, the intellectual property regime has to take into account this principle. The third is the principle of transparency and accountability. And that implies that intellectual regime uh, has to uh, require that all actors that participate in the intellectual regime uh, are held accountable for the obligation under international human rights law, uh, uh, specifically in relation to, to the content of rights and these cross-cutting principles. And finally, in national level, the committee has stressed also the uh, uh, importance of what, what he, we have called the core obligation. That is the obligation of state party to satisfy at least a minimum content of all rights. And so that implies at least that uh, an intellectual property regime that makes it difficult for a state party to comply with its core obligations in relation, for instance, to health, full education or other rights this intellectual property regime would not be consistent with the human rights obligation of the states. And finally, and with that, I finish my first part, uh, intellectual, uh, this uh, distinction has implication in relation to international obligation of states and extraterritorial obligation of states. Uh, that implies that uh, the international regime of intellectual property uh, has to respect human rights. I will go back in, in into that. Uh, for the moment, I only mention this aspect. With that, I turn to the second point. What is the specific relation of the previous consideration <clears throat> in relation to uh, two very important rights for the discussion we are having today, that is the right to benefit from scientific advancement and its application and the right to health. And this has been developed by the committee in the general comment number 25, 
which is a very recent general comment. The committee has said that in principle, uh, intellectual property can promote science and can promote uh, uh, access to science as, as it can promote uh, innovation. However, the committee has stressed at least three factors that makes that intellectual property on the contrary can block scientific advancement and access to its benefits. And these are at least the, 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 three, the, the three following. First, it can introduce distortions on uh, scientific development because uh, if scientific uh, in, in research is uh, conditioned by uh, the gain of uh, economic uh, uh, profits because of intellectual property, then uh, very crucial uh, researches are not carry, carried on. For, that has to do, for instance, with all this issue of the so-called neglected diseases that are not investigated uh, by uh, pharmaceutical companies. Second, intellectual property can block uh, access to information. Uh, why? Because sometimes they are covered by industrial secret, secret, so making difficult to share and advance science. And second, because sometimes scientific publications are so expensive that it's an obstacle for low-income researchers, especially in developing countries. And finally, uh, that makes difficult uh, the access to uh, some services, some medicines, vaccines that are crucial, for instance, for the right to health or other rights, for instance, seeds for the right to, uh, or peasants, for, for the rights of peasants. So because of these uh, possible counterproductive effects of uh, intellectual property, the conclusion is uh, that this has normative implication for states. So the, the general normative implication is that states has to um, uh, establish intellectual property regimes that uh, foster its positive effects on innovation, but at the same time uh, uh, guarantee the right of persons to benefit from science and to uh, enjoy the other uh, economic, social, and cultural rights. And for that, the committee establishes some implications. For instance, to foster research, uh, to, to finance and foster research, research that is crucial for um, uh, the, the enjoyment of economic, social, and cultural rights. Second, to establish other incentives for innovation different to intellectual property. Uh, there is a thinking that without intellectual property, there is not innovation. That's not true. You can create other incentives. For instance, the, 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 the so-called uh, market entry rewards that delink remuneration of successful research from future sales that can foster research without having all the inconvenience of uh, uh, intellectual property. And finally, the regulation of intellectual property has to be compatible with all economic, social, and cultural rights. For instance, not making difficult access to medicine, access to vaccine, especially for low-income countries and for the low-income persons in these countries. Having said that, the committee has uh, applied that this has, all, has also stressed that this has also international implications. States has to use their voting powers in international organization to ensure that intellectual property regimes are compatible with human rights obligations. And that has to do, of course, and 
with your right to health. In relation to the right to health, the, the, the main points that the committee has stressed is that intellectual property might sometimes be detrimental to the right to health because it makes unaccessible essential medicines in especially low-income countries. And with that, the committee has recommended that all states have to use the flexibilities within the international within the intellectual property international regime, uh, such as uh, compulsory, compulsory licenses to guarantee access to medicines and vaccines and, and, and all other elements that are essential for the right to health. In that context, the, the committee supports the, 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 the very well-known Doha Declaration on the TRICS agreements of 2001. And second, the committee has stressed the importance of generic uh, medicine uh, for uh, access to essential medicines, and that the, when states craft their internal uh, legal uh, intellectual property regime, they, the, they, they should avoid to grant disproportionately lengthy terms of patent protections that make difficult access to medicines or other elements essential for uh, 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 treating diseases. With that, I enter my last point, that is the implication of that in the current crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, uh, in that case, the, the, the committee has made these two statements that Leslie mentions. These two statements are essentially focused on vaccines, but the committee has said that what it says in these two statements about vaccines uh, is uh, applicable mutatis mutandi to the obligation of states in relation to ensure accessible, universal, equitable treatment to COVID-19 uh, uh, that is also for treatments and medicines. And with that, I think the argument of the committee is the following. The committee, the committee starts with a normative premise. This normative premise is that access to vaccines that are safe, effective, and based on the base scientific development is an, a human right. It's a normative premise that the committee builds very naturally from two rights, the right to the highest attainable uh, status of health first, and the right to benefit from scientific advancement. If you combine these two rights, you say every person has a right to access the, the, the safe and effective vaccines. And it's a universal right. It's not, it's, in, it's not a right of nationals of a specific country. It's a universal right. This right has an implication in obligation of states. And the implication is very natural. If person does that have the right, has that right, then there is an obligation of states to take all necessary measures as a matter of priority priority because we are in a pandemic to guarantee all person access to vaccines and treatments against COVID-19 without discrimination. And the committee states that it's not only a national obligation, but it's also an international obligation. So that states have a duty of international cooperation to guarantee this uh, access to medicine, to, to vaccines and medicine for COVID-19 universally. That is according to the medical uh, and public health necessities and not according to the income of persons. That is the normative 
premise of the uh, argumentation of the committee. Then the committee make a factual consideration, and, and he said that is not happening. In spite of that, we have have huge uh, scientific advances in the last uh, year and a half, and we've uh, and the world has been able to create uh, several vaccines that have proven proven uh, uh, safe and effective. Uh, the distribution of this vaccine is not equitable in the global. Uh, uh, world and second, the production of vaccine is has is not enough. Even if the world has the capacities of produ of producing enough vaccines for all persons in the world in a few months, but that that's not happening. That we are not having enough vaccines and we are not uh, distributing uh, them in a, an equitable manner. And the committee uh, stresses that it has to do with two factors. The first factors is vaccine nationalism. That is that especially the, the developed countries and the high income countries has uh, made uh, uh, specific uh, uh, agreements with uh, pharmaceutical companies. And there has been a kind of, 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 of temporary monopoly of these countries in the access of vaccines. And, and the committee says that that's a huge violation of the right on not to be discriminated in the global world in relation to vaccines. And the second is uh, uh, the intellectual property regime. Why? Because the intellectual property regime makes, uh, gives uh, the companies that have created these vaccines, even if they have created with a lot of, of uh, public money support, uh, they have a monopoly and they decide how many vaccines they can produce and where to produce them. And they don't transfer the technology at, at, to other states or other companies that could produce massively these vaccines. And the result is that we have a, a shortage of vaccines. With that, then the committee made the implication in relation to intellectual property. And, and these are two implications, essentially. The first implication is that uh, a state have to use all the flexibilities established in, in, in the TRIPS agreement, that is the Doha Declaration. But the committee says that uh, in the context of the pandemic, flexibilities are not enough. Uh, why flexibilities are not enough? Because they, they are made in case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and that's not enough to achieve the massive production of vaccines that are necessary now. And so the committee recommends states to support uh, uh, the proposition made by South Africa and India and supported by many other countries, unfortunately not my country, Colombia, but many other countries, uh, that there is a, a temporary waiver in relation to uh, vaccines. And I would say a temporary waiver also in relation to other technology necessary to uh, face the pandemic, at least until the pandemic is finished. So that is the essential argument of, of, of the committee in these two statements that I can develop furthermore in, 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 if there are questions on that. And I finish with a, a more political conclusion and is the following. I, 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 some some decades ago, ago I, I think it was 70 years ago, the, the great uh, biologist and poet, a French poet, Jean Rostand, made, a, I think, a very powerful statement. It, 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 he said that state uh, science has made us gods even before we were worthy of being men or being human. 
and I think that uh, the last year in relation to the pandemic has shown that science has been immensely creative in producing these innovations, as specifically in vaccine uh, for 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 uh, 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 for for COVID nineteen. However, we have not created the political and, and, and the legal instrument to guarantee universal access to vaccines. On the contrary, we are not producing enough vaccines. We are not producing, uh, distributing the, them uh, in a fair manner. And I think that these situations uh, is strongly linked with the problems intellectual property creates in relation to the to the uh, human rights uh, uh, access to to health and the human rights access to the benefits uh, of scientific advancement. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Rodrigo. That was exceptionally clear, and I think we're going to have a lot of discussion. We're not going to take questions after each speaker, but take questions at the end. So I'd like to ask Candice Alma from uh, MSF. She's the campaign access campaign officer and has been very involved in questions of uh, medicines access, both uh, nationally and uh, globally. So over to you, Candice. Great, thank you. So hi everyone, I'm Candice Lahoma as introduced and I work for um, Doctors Without Borders, also known as Medicines Farm Frontiers, as the Access Campaign Advocacy Officer. So today I'll be talking you guys through the patent law reform in South Africa. Um, so this piece of work uh, we do in coalition with Fix the pa with a coalition called Fix the Patent Laws, which is a, um, a coalition that was started by MSF, uh, Tech, as well as Section Twenty Seven, and now um, has about plus 40 um, organisations um, part of the coalition, and it spans from. Um, cancer organizations, uh, non-communicable non diseases, um, uh, organization, um, sexual reproductive health organization, mental health organization, and various others. And what we are calling for, and what the coalition does, is that we're calling for the government to fix our national patent laws. Uh, the law must be changed to include all, include all the life-saving provisions in the TRIPS agreement. And the aim for the Fix the Patent Laws campaign is to reform South Africa's outdated patent laws so that access to medicine is not unnecessarily limited. And we have seen through various initiatives and the work that we do that a lot of uh, medicine um, uh, is, you know, um, unreasonably high, uh, uh, inaccessible, in, you know, in the context in which we work. And that is also, that is uh, very much due to the current patent law that safeguards um, pharmaceuticals um, in, the ex in the expense of people on the ground. So, yes, yeah, so I'll just be taking you guys through, through the work that we do and um, just also highlighting what is currently wrong with our current patent law in South Africa. As you might know, that South Africa blindly hands out drug patents, even when they're not deserving. So a pharmaceutical can develop uh, a certain medicine and, and the current, you know, our current system would grant, um, you know, a pharmaceutical, particular pharmaceutical uh, for um, developing a drug product, um, a patent for about 20 years, uh, which makes it um, unaffordable, mainly because 
it's that that company or a product is kind of protected and therefore the pharmaceutical company can determine how much that um, the drug uh, will cost and where it will be accessible and that's due to the patent that's been granted for 20 years and in, in other cases that patent can be extended due to mechanisms in place that allow uh, pharmaceuticals to extend their patent monopolies. So essentially, this pharmaceutical would have a monopoly over this um, um, product and um, essentially making it inaccessible um, uh, for 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 people to actually um, uh, get access to this um, life-saving medicine and also making it impossible for other generic companies to be able to produce the same product which in turn makes it unaffordable. So a study that was made, uh, that was done, actually shows that the current patent system in South Africa, they, basically it's, it's a depository system that literally all, all you need is just an application form and an application fee for you to be granted a patent. And what we see is that a study, a comparative study that in 2008 alone, South Africa granted about 2,442 patents on medicine versus in Brazil, in the year 2003 to 2008, Brazil only granted about 273 patents on medicines. So that I think is quite telling of our flawed system that needs to be changed. And what are we calling for? Uh, we are calling for the South African uh, patent system to include these trips uh, flexibilities in the national law. Um, and what are these uh, uh uh, trips flexibilities. Firstly, is that we would like to see an appetent examination system. So currently, as I mentioned, um, getting a, a patent in South Africa is as easy as you just um, uh, putting out a, an application fee and an application form and you're granted that patent. What we would like to see is actually a system that would um, sort of we, we would have patent examiners vetting you know the 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 the, the credibility of actually get, giving um these granting these these patents to 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 these companies as well as um having a strict patentability criteria um and currently also having um, a pre-grant opposition um system um so at the moment um if a, a particular pharmaceutical applies for a patent there is no system that actually allows for you to challenge that um and and what we, would, what we would want to see is to have a, a system, a very a seamless system as well, that would allow for um, uh, for challenging the uh, the granting of such patents, so pre and post grant opposition um, system, as well as if the, um, the the patent has been given, um, we have like there should be like a patent uh, rev revocation system that is also seamless. So currently, the rev revocation system would take about three years and cost uh, millions um, for us to actually go through that process. And what we would want to see is um, an administrative process that um, that allows for patent revocation in the case of a patent being granted. Um, and then also a parallel importation, um, and lastly, um, a compulsory license, which um, allows for um, the government in the event that there is um, a need for a certain uh, medicine, the government can um, issue a compulsory license um, that would allow a local um, a manufacturer or producer to be able to, to make that, that, um, that product.
So does South Africa make use of these trips flexibilities? Uh, what we do know that is that other countries have used these reforms to make their patent system um, uh, to sort of to safeguard um, uh, uh, public health. Um, but in South Africa, it is not the case, as I've mentioned, that there is a need for stricter patentability criteria, a patent search and examination system, a patent opposition system, and improved compulsory license mechanisms and improved um, parallel importation mechanisms. So in 2018, um, through it also took a very long uh, time for them to actually publish um, an IP policy. And this IP policy basically rep uh, reflects some of these um, some of these uh, flexibilities that we have been calling for. However, it's not something that we can sort of put into effect until the 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 the, the flexibilities are um, uh, are translated into our national law. Only then it will um, be um, more effective. Um, however, IP policy is a step um, in the right direction. And also in the case of patent examiners, so what the Department of Trade and Industry has has done is that they have appointed. Um, uh, from the last time I checked, it was about 20 patent examiners, and they have been going through trainings um, to be able to sort of prepare them for when we have that national law to be able to do uh, patent examination. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think just to highlight also in terms of the work that we do as MSF, um, we do quite a lot in, uh, of work in terms of um, providing um, TB treatment. And one of the challenges that we faced um, was also just in the issue around um, um, access to bedaculin, which is a DRTB drug. And it's also a WHO um, recommended um, um, drug for DRTB patient, patients. And this has been, so meaning that this this recommended by the WHO, that has meant that the national TB program must scale up access to bedaculin. And subsequent to that, South Africa expanded the use of bedaculin into its national expansion program. However, um, the price of bedaculin has been expensive um, and there has been a lot of campaigns targeted at Johnson & Johnson, which is the company that produces um, bedaculin, calling for them to drop the price of, um, of bedaculin to about a dollar a day. Um, and because they are the only producers of bedaculin and they hold the patent rights um, to bedaculin, it has made it so expensive. And as compared to if they had like um, other um, producers producing the same um, um, uh, drug, um, since it, it would sort of contribute to making the, 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 the drug um, less expensive. So increasing the use of this drug in hybriding settings can be achieved efficiently through the introduction of alternative suppliers. However, encouraging the alternative suppliers requires the patent barriers to be effectively addressed. And then in the case of the Dicolin in India, so Johnson & Johnson has filed for multiple patents on bedaculin in the Indian market. So currently Johnson & Johnson has control over the market author authorization of bedaculin until 2023 in, in India, yet it has filed for a secondary patent of bedaculin to extend its monopoly until 2027. So as I mentioned that you know, the current system kind of allows for pharmaceuticals to even extend their monopoly for so many other years. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, so this is what they sort of made use of in India to actually extend their monopoly. So if this patent is granted in India, it will extend the secondary patent to 2027. And then in 2019, there were two um, patient advocates who were also 
um, diagnosed um, uh, who diagnosed with um, DRTB, they challenged the Johnson and Johnson's application um, in India in a process called a patent opposition. As I've mentioned previously, one of the trips flexibilities is to have a post. Um, a post opposition um uh opposition um system and in india there is such a system in place and therefore these two patients a south african and an indian patient advocate were able to um challenge this um application or that we um yeah able to challenge this application um however this is an application that's still pending and we're still awaiting feedback from that then how does that relate to South Africa? So this patent opposition in India highlights how South Africa's flawed patent system, which has already granted the patent on bedaculin for um, um, that is currently being challenged in India until 2027. So as I mentioned that in, in India, currently it's only until 2023, and then there has been another sort of an application for extension. However, in South Africa, it has already been granted until 2027. And, you know, and I think this moment in India is crucial for South Africa because it also stresses the need for South Africa to set up and prioritize patent law reform to allow for actions, actions such as opposing pre and post grant um, um, patent applications. So, yeah, so as I mentioned that with the work that we do um, through Fix the Patent Law um, is really calling for the South African government to, um, to, change, our, uh, to change our law and safeguard um, public health um, and to, you know, expedite the process. Um, it has been going on for a very long time. And it's quite sad that, you know, 10 years later and so many actually years later, we're still, you know, um, sort of calling on the same thing for them to to change our, our patent law and you know uh, as professor Rodrigo has mentioned that there has been um you know uh, calls for um, a trips waiver which is a submission by south africa and india um to you know to have a waiver on covid 19 medical products um but also in light of that um, in the absence of a waiver because that's still something that's not been concluded on south africa should be in a position to rely on its legislative mechanism to push for more increased access to essential medical tools in the pandemic. So there is a need for us to expedite um, our law reform process. Um, as you know, Israel and Chile had you know, um, relied on their um, um, national um, uh, uh, national laws um, to, and they actually granted a compulsory license for the COVID-19 treatment. I think we should be able, we should put ourselves in a position to also do the same in the absence of um, the waiver and which is still being um, called for. And we are seeing now that, you know, um, South Africa is very much on the forefront in this and there needs to be consistency in terms of, you know, um, whatever is being, you know, um, call for on the international stage there should there is a need for um uh, also uh, sort of a domestic legislation to be to be reformed and should have the same you know a political will for intellectual property reform um which we are seeking at the WTO. so what are we calling for is um as as fixed the patent was to put a temporary moratorium on granting patents on COVID-19 uh product as as they are proven effective. Um, secondly, is automatic compulsory license of COVID-19 related health products with existing or pending patents. Um, and lastly, is to fix the patent laws urgently to ensure the use of all legal flexibilities to improve access to health products. Um, so yeah, I'll end it there. And thank you so much for, um, 
for listening. And if you would like to know more about their campaign, you can visit our website, fixthepatentlaws.org, or follow us on Twitter um, and Facebook. Thank you. Thanks so much, Candice. Um, and uh, if anybody wants to get that information, Candice, could you just post it in the chat for the meeting? Okay. Uh, and um, we'll pick up questions to you at the end. Uh, we need to move on. Um, and I want to introduce Professor Yusuf Varda, who's a professor of law at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, also a long-term activist with civil society around human rights and particularly around intellectual property issues in South Africa and a great supporter of the work of uh, Fix the Patent Law. So over to you, Yusuf. So thank you, Leslie, and warm greetings to all of you on this uh, webinar. My focus is going to be on the challenges that African countries faced in uh, exercising their rights to use the flexibilities, uh, the public health flexibilities under the TRIPS agreement. Now, many of you will know that for almost three decades, access to medicines, activists, and advocates have championed the use of uh, TRIPS public health flexibilities in order to uh, overcome the IP monopolies that have priced medicines and other health products out of the reach of the majority of the global population. Uh, one of the key um, public health flexibilities is in fact the, the one that we're dealing with compulsory licensing, and I might add government use licenses. Uh, as many of you will know also that uh, the compulsory license flexibility is, is action when a government grants an authority to a third party, it could be a generic uh, manufacturer, to in fact um, you know, use and manufacture the, um, the invention that is covered by the patent. Uh, and, and in the case of a government use license, it is government giving this authority to itself. So that's just by way of you know, distinguishing those two. I'm going to start by um, presenting some evidence on how uh, the flexibilities have actually been used in Africa. And, what I've done in the left column is to identify the key flexibilities that have been used uh, by type, in other words, for, you know, what kind of function that they serve. And then of course, I've got on the right-hand side, uh, the number of uses of those flexibilities that have taken place in Africa. And I just say that this uh, information is also part of a larger study that actually looks at compulsory licensing and other flexibilities use uh, more sort of globally, but I think we could just say that the patterns are very similar in that uh, the use of uh, the flexibilities have been somewhat limited. Now, while that number 72 at the end there looks uh, like a lot, uh, let me sort of explain some of the context. Okay, so what we have found in um, you know, searching the various databases that actually record how often flexibilities have been used uh, that the so-called compulsory licensing and government use flexibility has been used by African countries on 29 occasions. Uh, and here we're looking at the period from about 2003 to probably the present, or the information we have is up to 2019. So that's, you know, a sort of 16-year sort of span. Uh, so compulsory licensing was used 29 times. And of course, that's not a lot of times. Um, the... Second uh, flexibility that I've highlighted there is what is known as the LDC pharmaceutical waiver. This is a flexibility which enables least developed countries to not apply the pharmaceutical uh, patent protections 
for an extended period of time as a transition uh, flexibility that they allow. Right? So these are uh, in Africa, there's some 33 countries which fall into this uh, uh, space. And because they're LDCs, they don't have to recognize uh, pharmaceutical patents and they could go ahead and import them and so on without infringing patents, without breaking any laws. We had 41 uh, uses of this particular flexibility in Africa in the period that I mentioned. Then the third one is the parallel importation uh, flexibility, which has been used once. And then um, that was in Kenya. And then of course the competi competition-based flexibility. In other words, using competition law and policy to uh, access medicines. That was used once and that was in South Africa. Uh, well, there were a couple of cases, but it was used in South Africa, again, in the mid 2000s, uh, when um, complaints were lodged with the Competition Commission that the uh, pharmaceutical companies had been engaging in what is known as excessive pricing. So that's the type of flexibilities that have been used and the number of times they've been used. So let's do a quick analysis of this and see what it tells us about what's, what's happening here. So what we're able to tell by looking at the 54 countries that some 41 countries have used some form of flexibility over this period, right? So not everybody has done it, uh, right? Um, as I indicated, there have been 72 uses of the flexibilities. In other words, flexibilities have been used 72 times uh, by those 41 countries. And some countries, of course, have used it multiple times and others have used the flexibility just once. Um, the, the numbers there are all, uh, I've already repeated that. Uh, but what's interesting here, if you look down the second bullet point and then the sub bullets, um, number five, which says 70 of these 72 were uh, flexibilities were used in the period 2000 and two to 2009. Now, of course, it's very easy to understand why that was the case, because this was the time when we've had the, the peak of the HIV AIDS pandemic, um, and that in fact, the need for antiretrovirals, as you know, because of the exorbitant pricing by uh, multinational companies, uh, made them inaccessible and unaffordable, um, then gave rise to the need for uh, compulsory licensing to be able to access genetic medicines. The significance of this period also lies in the fact that this, uh, and as I said, say down in the next bullet, the bulk of these uh, applications for compulsory licenses or use of the LDC transition were for antiretrovirals. And what's significant here is that it was during the, peri the period the window before the Indian Patents Act of 2005 came into operation. So what we had happening here was that up to 2005, India was allowed to continue not recognizing product patents, and therefore they were not infringing if they copied and produced those ARVs and they supplied it to you know, other countries. Uh, and this was when I think we had the maximum use of um, these flexibilities. Of course, come 2005, and the new Indian Patent Act coming into operation, it put a break on the uh, quantity and the uh, range of um, genetic production that was actually possible. And in fact, now all the new newer drugs were patented and it was not possible for them to easily make uh, use of that. Compulsory licenses would have to be sought. And of course, those came with their own uh, set of problems. 
Uh, also important to note is of the uh, 33 least developed countries in Africa, only 25 of them have used the LDC waiver flexibility. So you'll find that in the laws of many countries which are least developed countries, they have actually uh, provisions that protect patents, even though they're not required to by the World Trade Organization, by the TRIPS agreement, right? So, I mean, this is you know, part of the historical problem that I would talk about in, in a moment. It's also important to note that the uh, flexibilities have not been used in Africa since 2014. Uh, the ones that I mentioned, as I said, were in that period, uh, 2002 to 2009, 70 of them. And then in the 2010-2014 period, um, just two. That's very interesting. We're in South Africa, and there's a lot of focus on South Africa. So I think it's fair to say that um, the study that was mentioned in the earlier presentation, we were involved in that, and what became very clear that although South Africa has had legislation that allows compulsory licensing to take place in over more than a century, because we've had the first provisions in the early 20th century, in more than 100 years, there has not been a single compulsory license granted on a pharmaceutical product. But this is not because applications have not been made. It is because of a number of issues, which I, I can move on to just now. So maybe then just trying to unpack why we've had such a limited use of these, this very important uh, option that countries might have. Um, and of course, why also do countries not uh, you know, include these flexibilities in their legislation? Why, why haven't they reformed their legislation as you know, South Africa is uh, proposing to do? We hope uh, it will be done soon. Uh, and why do they uh, not use them even when they are in the law? I think that's got to do with two kinds of challenges. One is what we I call a sort of historical challenge, and the other, the sort of more contemporary challenges. So the historical challenges, I think, lie in the fact that the intellectual property legislation, including the patent laws of most countries in Africa, if not all, are a product of their colonial history, right? The, the, they were colonies of um, the European countries, and they sort of willy-nilly adopted the IP laws of these uh, countries, and they had to apply them because, uh, of course, the purpose of the colonies was basically to serve the, the so-called metropole. Uh, so the very architecture of IP laws uh, is such that it makes it very difficult uh, for them to be used. The, the, the design is essentially to protect rights holders, and very little attention is given to the rights of the public and people who have to use uh, you know, coming back to Rodrigo's point about to also they enjoy the fruits of, of um, uh, you know, the advancement in science and technology and so on. And the more contemporary challenges, I think, relate to what the situation that we have at the moment. For example, the lack of expertise of skilled people, um, the lack of a substantive examination system, which requires, you know, the employment and training of a range of experts who are able to process these applications. South Africa does not process these applications. The figure that uh, we produced in the study of 2,442 patents in one year, but simply because South Africa does not uh, examine patents and anything that is deposited as a, an application gets approved. So I, can, I think many of you in South Africa will, will identify with this. It seems like it is easier to get a patent in South Africa on a medicine uh, than to renew your driver's license. Uh, but I'll let uh, Leslie inform you about that. 
but also the resources that are needed to uh, you know, maintain that kind of system. So I think those are some of the more structural uh, difficulties that countries have and challenges that they face. Uh, compulsory licenses are notoriously difficult to use. Firstly, you have to have a prior negotiation. Of course, there are some exceptions to this if you know, you're using it for public non-commercial use in the case of a government license. Uh, but there has to be a prior negotiation between the, um, uh, say, generic company who's applying for it and the holder of the patent, right? And of course, it's, it's got to be done on a drug by drug, case by case basis. So this is a very long process. And usually the negotiations, as you know, most negotiations, they can be stalled by a party that is not interested in finding a solution. And this is generally what happens. So this is the first um, uh, obstacle. The second set of obstacles in using compulsory licensing is what are known as patent thickets, or in other words, the whole collection and maze of patents that may be applicable to a particular product, right? Uh, often it's uh, not just one or two, it runs into uh, you know, multiples and sometimes even hundreds of uh, patents on a single set of product. So for a competitor to unearth that and to know that is a huge mission, it requires a lot of resources. And of course, there are other protections as well. There may be protections as we are discovering now that, that they're covered uh, by trade secrets or copyright or industrial um, design or, you know, and a number of other IP protections as well. So all of these things have to be negotiated. There are trade and political pressures on countries. There's a lot in the literature about how South Africa, Brazil, Thailand got punished by <clears throat> high-income countries and the pharmaceutical industry for, for attempting to, to pass, um, uh, to, to approve uh, compulsory licenses. There's the problem in Africa of the regional intellectual property organizations, which are not really fit for purpose. Uh, there's uh, literature on that issue as well. There's the problem of political will. You know, governments are not keen to uh, challenge the status quo in, in many cases. Uh, we often wonder why our government is so tardy in passing the uh, you know, reformed uh, Patents Act. And then there's issues like judicial deference. So for example, uh, lawyers will be particularly interested in this, is that uh, another study that we had conducted looked at compulsory licensing, why we ha haven't had that in 100 years. And what we found was that in addition to the very colonial architecture of the laws, the judges, the bureaucrats who are trained to uh, you know, adjudicate these um, uh, patent disputes and so on, uh, have a mindset which is really steeped in you know, that, that particular culture. And it's steeped in protection of the holder's rights and has no conception whatsoever of public interest in, in these kinds of matters. Uh, and this is not only in the apartheid era, by the way. We've had recent cases in the you know, constitutional era where they have actually not applied uh, constitutional imperatives uh, you know, successfully. So you know, that's, again, something that we can, we can uh, deal with in questions and so on. So now just to probably conclude, uh, reference has been made to the waiver. And um, I just want to sort of point out that uh, quickly, the position of South Africa, India, and the 100 countries that have uh, supported the waiver uh, is simply because what the waiver can do is, it's not a magic bullet, but it can, through a single action at the World Trade Organization, uh, result in what we might have to achieve through hundreds of actions in different countries applying for uh, compulsory licensing and so on. So that's the one big advantage. It, it, it provides, it will provide a blanket suspension of all the relevant IPs for the duration of the uh, waiver. 
And it also provides legal cover against being hauled to the WTO on their dispute uh, settlement provisions. Uh, so this is the kind of protection that the waiver would give. On the other hand, um, and this is why, of course, the reasons for which South Africa and India proposed that waiver are fairly clear, the crisis of the pandemic, uh, the fact that there's a shortage of supply, the fact that although there are multiple producers uh, throughout the world who can manufacture, uh, whose, whose facilities are lying idle, the pharmaceutical industry uh, refuses to share its know-how to enable this to actually happen. Now, the European Union position and the pharma position, and of course, this is usually the position of rich countries, is that IP is not a problem. Uh, and they, in, in, in support of that, they say, well, you see, we delivered so many vaccines in record time in one year and so on. But I think as others have indicated, they did not deliver that alone. It was achieved largely through the tremendous uh, collaboration by scientists, firstly, but also the enormous amount of public funds that accelerated the vaccine production process. They say that IP protection is necessary for further innovation. We know that what we are seeing before our very eyes is an orgy of, of profiteering. You'll see that there's already 15 new billionaires just in one year alone as a result of the profits that are being made by Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, and, and other companies. And then uh, we have the very cynical position by the EU and the pharmaceutical industry that the existing flexibilities are sufficient to improve access. So I say it's cynical, it's ironic, it's criminal almost, because these are the very forces, right? Those countries, those industries that have uh, provided obstacles to the use of these flexibilities. So are now saying, well, why don't you use those flexibilities? You do not need a waiver. So I think that's the level of hypocrisy that we've actually got in terms of you know, the way rich countries have been playing out this uh, particular game. Uh, but I'm going to stop there and happy to take any questions. Uh, but I thought I should end with that note that uh, the waiver is necessary for all of these reasons, mainly because the existing system is broken and it has failed the poor people all over the world. Thank you. Thanks so much, Yusuf. That was really excellent and a really eye-opener insight into some uh, of what is actually going on on the ground. Um, we're going to open it up for questions. I'm aware that uh, some people might need to leave to attend the David Sanders Memorial Lecture, but we'll take uh, some time for questions and discussion. Um, and I will look for any hands that go up and ask that Annalene assist me. Um, I will just start off by just uh, highlighting a point made in the chat by Samuke Lisiwe, uh, basically pointing out the gendered impact of the pandemic uh, on uh, for women and how important that is to highlight as well. And perhaps the speakers can just bear that in mind when they respond to questions. I would actually like to uh, maybe just flight the, you know, to expand on what Yusuf has said. <clears throat> when um, uh, Pfizer announced a, a collaboration with BioVac in South Africa around an mRNA center to manufacture mRNA vaccines, <clears throat> uh, it was in the same uh, news release, Pfizer was attacking the, the waiver, saying that the waiver will destroy this kind of uh, uh, technology transfer. I wonder if uh, any of the speakers want to comment on that, because it's our impression in a way that the uh, setting up of the mRNA center in, in South Africa and in uh, one other center in Africa was specifically the result of the pressure from the CHIPS uh, campaign and wouldn't have happened if there wasn't sort of worldwide condemnation. And uh, what would you say to those who are campaigning for the CHIPS waiver based on your experience? 
anyway, I've now abused my position as chair to ask a question. And I don't know if anyone else in the audience wants to add to that. I'll go, Leslie, uh, if I can maybe just briefly uh, respond to that. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think, it, I think uh, it's very clear uh, for people working in the campaign what has to be done, and that is to continue the pr uh, pressure and to continue to, uh, you know, um, call them to account in ways in which uh, they have not been willing to do. And uh, just in relation to the specific issue of Pfizer, and I think this is the situation with um, the pharma industry generally, is that uh, what they have actually done to some extent is co-opted the demand that has been made by the you know, progressive lobbies to say, okay, right, there's going to be, uh, you know, we were responding to that particular demand. Uh, but in effect, if you look closely at the kind of, and I'm not sure what, how the hub is going to pan out, but certainly with the instances that we've got of the Aspen facility and BioVac even, there is no substantial technology transfer that's actually involved in the work there. Both those facilities are doing what is known as full and finish of the vaccine, right? Uh, which requires very minimal tech transfer and is essentially is a, you know, almost end of process uh, function. It's when the technology to actually manufacture the vaccine substance, the, you know, the details of those things are actually shared, then that we will see uh, sort of meaningful tech transfer and that um, uh, facilities in the developing world will be capacitated to undertake that. So I'll pause there. I have others want to. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Prof Yusuf. I think um uh, yeah, I think it's a very piecemeal kind of approach which um pharmaceuticals kind of rely on. And I think in the instance in the instance of um Aspen and Johnson and Johnson, we have seen with that contract, the kind of the the current contract that they have, um is that it's still a fill and finish um, contract and it kind of restricts um, uh, John's, I mean, Aspen from you know, determining where the product that they produce will go as we have seen recently that um, even in the distribution, they have no say as to where the, 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 the vaccines will go because of the license that um, Johnson & Johnson still holds that even if they can say that, oh, we have a license with Aspen, but it's not a full-on license, it's still very restrictive. And hence we see what we've seen recently where Aspen has exported um, vaccines to Europe overlooking, you know, um, um, uh, you know, exporting into the continent. And I think that's also as a, as a result of the kind of license agreements that they actually enter into that is still very restrictive. Um, and I think what we want to see is actually a full-on license, a full tech transfer that would um, allow for, you know, production and distribution rights to these local, um, local manufacturers. Uh, thanks, Candice. Uh, there, there were some quite specific questions in the chat, which I'm just going to read out. Anybody want to respond to these? You can. What will it actually take to shift the position of the EU and its partners on the waiver? And related to that was what is the current status of the waiver and what are its prospects uh, of happening? Uh, then a question about uh, South Africa is known for its commissions of inquiry. Why hasn't there been a commission investigating this uh, situation together with the competition board. Um, and then a question about the pandemic treaty that's being proposed. Is it a distraction aimed at distracting us from pushing the TRIPS waiver? In other words, is the pandemic treaty something we should support or is it uh, confusing things at the moment? So perhaps we could take those three questions. 
And Rodrigo, I don't know if you want to comment on any of those or anything that's gone earlier. Uh, thank you, Leslie. I, I will comment globally on the three questions and the previous one that you made. Um, hearing the, the, the excellent presentation by Candice and Joseph, uh, I, I think that in relation to uh, intellectual property and health, uh, I think th there is a, a struggle in three different levels. Uh, the first level is, if you want, an ideological or mental one. That, that is, um, I think that the pharmaceutical companies have done a great job in, in creating this image that without intellectual property, there is no innovation. And that's, that's not true. Um, I'm not against in, uh, intellectual property, for instance, in computers. Because uh, if you don't, if you if you don't want, you don't buy another computer. But with intellectual property in health, the the, the the issue is very problematic because at the end of the day, is that states are paying because health is a right and and it should be subsidized by state. At the end of the day, states are paying the research made by pharmaceutical companies with their prices and with their priorities of research. So, so I think that a first discussion is a discussion of the usefulness of intellectual property in the, in, in the health uh, 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 field. Of course, it's a huge uh, discussion in, and there are entrenched interests and it's very difficult, but at least we have all the time to say, for instance, uh, uh, because of intellectual property, all resources are doing in research that uh, is not beneficial for the majority of the population are the most disadvantaged. Uh, and sometimes innovation are not really innovations, but they are presented as such, etc., etc. There's a lot of evidence on that. Because as Joseph said, sometimes uh, judges, when they have to decide cases, are so entrenched in this ideology that they make uh, counterproductive decisions. For instance, uh, in a lot of cases in Latin America, uh, uh, judges decide that uh, the state should not provide generic medicines, but uh, uh, medicines, uh, I don't know how, to, uh, in the mark, I don't know how to say it in, in English, uh, uh, the, the label medicine made by the company, because they think they are better. Of course, they are not better, but they cost seven, uh, 20 times the generic medicines. But that's an ideological discussion. The second is to, to use all the potential flexibilities of the TRIPS uh, agreement and the Doha declaration. Uh, I, I, I saw very clearly by, 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 by this discussion that many African countries that could use some of the flexibilities for, for less developed countries are not using them. Uh, so within the, the TRIPS agreement, uh, even if we accept intellectual property in the, in the health field that I'm not so in favor, uh, 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 we have a lot of flexibility that we have to strengthen and use. Uh, but of course, there are a lot of uh, political pressures by pharmaceutical companies against that. And I, and I agree with Jos Joseph that that's the hypocrisy in the discussion about the waiver, that uh, uh, you, you don't need the waiver because you have the flexibilities. But if you dare to use the flexibilities, we are going to put pressure on you as a state. Uh, uh, so, but it, there are flexibilities that could, you, could be used more strongly by states in their internal legal regime. 
And the third is uh, the, the, the problem of the waiver. Uh, I think that the, the waiver is necessary uh, because if, the, if, it, if we don't have a waiver, to scale up production is going to be impossible uh, uh, because uh, all the flexibilities are, do are, do are done uh, as uh, explained by Candice uh, and Joseph on a case-by-case on -case basis. So I think these are three different fields of, of, of discussion that we have to to take uh, uh, um, at different levels. Thank you. Uh, Yusuf, do you want to respond? Uh, yes, thanks. Just to add to what I think uh, Rodrigo has covered very well. Uh, first, on the issue of the waiver, I think uh, there was a question about what is the current status. So as I understand it, discussions that have been happening at the TRIPS Council uh, were kind of deadlocked because, um, you know, South Africa and India and the supporting countries uh, put up a re revised proposal, not a changed one, but a revised one and more you know, finely tuned one because the complaints that were coming from the rich country uh, you know, lobbies uh, was that um, you know, it was, uh, they were, the scope was too wide, firstly. Secondly, the duration of the you know, pandemic of, of the waiver was not spelled out. So these revisions uh, that they put forward attempted to deal with that. And they made it clear that it's at the containment of, you know, this and prevention of, of COVID-19 and it uh, uh, relates to all uh, intellectual property uh, protections. That's not only patents, uh, as well as that it's got a time limited, uh, uh, you know, duration of, of three years. So um, my understanding is that that uh, uh, discussions during the last, before they broke in August for, for the break, uh, was that there would be text-based discussion. No, they would start looking at that sort of at what would wording that would go into the, the actual waiver proposal. And it seems that that progress is very slow on that. They're going to reconvene in September, but there is an end of year ministerial conference by which, uh, at which there should be a report pre presented on whether there's consensus and so on. Uh, so while I think the countries that are proposing the waiver are working very hard uh, there's a lot of obfuscating and filibustering, as they call it, you know, asking endless questions, even after they've been answered, asking the same questions that are stalling the sort of process. And while I think there's a lot of hard work to be done still, um, you know, whether there will be a resolution by uh, the end of the year is, is sort of anybody's guess. So if I can just maybe leave that then and take one more minute to talk about the pandemic treaty, which uh, I think was also raised. Uh, in short, I don't think that they are at odds. I don't think the, the talk of the pandemic uh, treaty necessarily um, uh, in, you know, damages the claims that the waiver proposal is making. I think they can you know, be uh, complementary in, in, in most respects. Um, I think part of the problem that we have to consider a waiver or we have to consider a pandemic treaty is because the existing systems are broken, right? So, you know, the intellectual property system has become distorted to, you know, basically prioritize industry interest, forget about everything else, and it's not working. It's working for everybody, uh, it's working for nobody except for the, you know, pharmaceutical industry. But I think the pandemic treaty is also important for another reason, and that is that the processes at the WTO have inordinately affected our responses to global health crises. And we, that cannot happen. How can a trade uh, body 
be responsible for what kind of response we are able to make and you know, the necessary responses that we need to make in, 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 a, in, a, in a pandemic of you know, uh, international proportions. So I think that's, that's really the, the difficulty there. And part of the problem is because the World Health Organization, which should have been the premier agency to call the shots on uh, pandemic responses globally, has been pretty much battered and you know disempowered uh, uh, over sort of many years. So in a sense, that uh, issue needs to be you know, in, in the bigger picture needs to be addressed as well. But I think that these actually can be complementary processes. I know I've been long, but let me pause there. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Yusuf. Um, the two other questions in the chat, which I think are going to, have to be our last questions, and I've sort of consolidated them in two. There was a question about the impact of the waiver on costs of pharmaceuticals and goods. And related to that, um, there was also a comment about uh, the, the um, even if the waiver is granted, what about other issues like skills, capacity, acceptance? And in my understanding, the answer to this question, I'll ask the panel just to confirm, is that the waiver doesn't guarantee that uh, pharmaceutical costs will be reduced, but it makes it possible if other things are in place. And the second set of questions was around the opportunity for civil society to litigate. Uh, so there was a question about whether civil society should be pushing states in Africa to uh, use uh, TRIPS flexibilities. And uh, another question saying, well, if, if uh, we have this international human rights regimens, which clearly states that access to vaccines is a human right, where should we, where should we be litigating? Where should civil society be litigating? I think those were the two last sets of questions, and uh, I'll hand it over to the panel to respond. Perhaps, uh, Rodrigo, if you want to kick off. Yes, uh, thank you, Leslie. Very, very good question. Uh, I, I will take first the, the one on litigation. I, I think in, in, norma in normative terms, if you want in abstract terms, it, it would be an easy way, an easy litigation. Uh, uh, because the right is clear and the obligation of states, I think, according to international law, are clear. The problem would be the forum, where to litigate. And, and that's very difficult because, uh, in principle, you, you should litigate it against WTO, uh, that is, uh, against the World Trade Organizations. I think that, that one of the big problems is that we have a fragmentation of international law and you have the regulation, but as Yusuf said, it's crazy that the discussion on how to address the pandemic are not made in WHO, but in WTO. That's crazy. It should be made in WHO, and this decision should be binding, but it's the contrary. The decisions that are strong are those in WTO. And this fragmentation of international law, I think, is and in which many of the economic international organizations think that they have they don't have human rights obligations uh, I think is one of the main problems to to make uh, uh, some international litigation but I think uh, for instance try to litigate a case before I don't know an open national court in another in another country might might be a good way to to, to address the issue, that is to, to litigate that, uh, for instance, in the European Union, they should support the waiver in benefit in bene uh, 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 to, to support uh, a global a global distribution of vaccines. Uh, 
So that's the, 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 the problem that we have clear legal and ethical standards, but we, we don't have really the procedures, the, the procedural mechanisms to enforce them. Uh, and we have entrenched interest against these kind of uh, um, approaches. Thank you. Thanks. So, Dieter, I think you asked that question, and now you have a very clear answer, and you can be going to court in Germany, Dieter. <laughs> um, uh, Yusuf and Candice, do you want to make any last comments? Uh, I think just my comment will just be on the question around um, having the skills and capacity um, if, you know, if, if around, I mean, the argument around the waiver. And I think um, what should be noted is that also the waiver, you know, what is a common sort of calling on the waiver, it's very much focused on um, vaccines, but what should be understood is that we are calling on a waiver on all COVID-19 medical products. And I think one thing that should be considered is that, you know, countries like South Africa does have capacity. If we're going to be looking at diagnostic um, production, um, we do have capacity. And I think an example for me is, you know, last year um, at the height of, you know, um, uh, I think the first wave or second wave, uh, we had um, shortages in terms of um, uh, diagnostic tools. And one of the initiatives that the South African, the Department of Science and Innovation took was to actually reach out to um, CFID, who uh, produces of um, Gene Expert, which was one of the diagnostic that was used that is used to diagnose um, COVID nineteen. Had reached out to them to call. I mean, um, requesting for a tech transfer, and CFID would not very responsive to that and hence the the whole initiative fell through you know so considering that there is um, um, a, a capacity to actually produce those um, uh, um, um, diagnostic tools um, I think it's very important to actually look at you know the waiver not just looking at vaccines and I think also in terms of vaccines um, production I think there is a need in as much as you know our current facilities can only do fill and finish there is you know this mRNA um, hub is actually a very important initiative to actually upscale and you know upscale our capacity and I think also you know um, countries in the global north in, in um Funding institutions also have a responsibility to fund these local manufacturers to better capacitate them to be able to produce um, in the near future. So I think the issue around, you know, skills, um, capacity and stuff, I think that's something that for me, it's just also an argument that, you know, pharma can just, you know, trying to um, brush away this whole um, uh, call. But I think if we were to look, um, we do have the capacity and also um, they also have a responsibility in terms of the tech transfer, sharing of technology and know-how. Um, that's also a role that, you know, it can be facilitated. You can actually produce um, with the, with the um, current capacity we have. Thanks, uh, Candice. I wonder if I could just, in closing, ask if the three panelists could just think about one take-home message you want the audience to take away from here. If there was one thing that you think is really important for the audience to take away, perhaps you want to uh, share that with us. Candice, do you want to give it a shot of what you think is like really the most important take-home message? 
Um, I think for me, just looking at locally and what's the need, the urgent need for um, local law reform, um, I think there is, you know, and as much as we are putting pressure, you know, globally, I think there is a need for us to actually do more in terms of putting pressure on the government to reform our national law. And that should be the focus um, at the moment. And I think, yeah, it's, it's quite an important um, thing that civil society should, um, civil society in South Africa should um, sort of ready against that. I mean, really towards, you know, putting more pressure on the government to expedite our law reform in South Africa. Thanks, Candice. Uh, Yusuf, do you want to give a bash at a, a take-home message? Yes, I think that uh, what, what one needs to take maybe, I know that we're all in um, a hurry to get the vaccines out and produced, you know, locally throughout the world and so on. But perhaps one needs to take a little bit more of a longer-term sort of view of this, and I say that because I think that, um, you know, it doesn't end if the, the waiver is approved or not in, in the minister's ministerial conference actually happens. We need to understand this sort of moment in history. It's, it's pretty much like I think what happened around Doha in 2001, right? I mean, that was a kind of watershed moment. Uh, but is it a, what is it the watershed for? And I think that's really what we need to sort of understand. So here we are knocking at the citadel of intellectual property power, right? the WTO, and saying, this system is not working, it's broken. Let's start thinking about something different or something new that actually works for people. And I think that is the sort of message that's come. Because for me, you know, even if the waiver, uh, waiver uh, proposal is not passed in the form that you know, we're hoping that it would be, uh, what can 120 you know, countries, 115 countries, who have united on this issue take away from that? How does one use that to build uh, a greater movement that actually brings us real fundamental sort of change? I think for me, that's the strong message of this. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Yusuf. And Rodrigo, do you want to share a take-home message? What I would uh, like to, to, to stress is uh, what I said at the beginning, uh, intellectual property is not a human right, so intellectual property has to uh, um, uh, comply with human rights obligations. And so we have to say, to make what uh, I heard from a professor from Spain, a healthy interpretation of uh, intellectual properties. That is an, an interpretation of intellectual property rules in favor of the right to health and not the contrary. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I've taken all those three messages away and we are going to record this webinar. So those three messages and the full contents of the webinar are going to be available. I'm hoping that Rodrigo and Candice and Yusuf can share with us any documents or URLs for documents so that when we email all the registrants, we can share both the URL for this webinar and any other documents that are useful. And I really want to thank the speakers for a fantastic uh, webinar and the audience for a very uh, participative session uh, lots of questions. I'm afraid we couldn't uh, deal with them all, uh, but uh, we've really made a, a, a great advance today in trying to understand how we can best tackle this very intractable problem, which hopefully won't be intractable forever. So thank you all. Thank you everyone for attending. And we'll see you at uh, future meetings of uh, the campaign for the covenant and uh, in the um, campaign for fixing the patent laws. Thanks everybody. <laughs>